Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a new partner, Arostia, a new coffee roaster based in Queens. This company was created by and is run by a huge fish fan, Andy Hollander, who hasn't caught a hold your head up since 12, 15, 95, but is definitely not bitter about it. I've had this coffee and it's really great. Andy started roasting coffee during the pandemic, taught himself, and then that turned into this label, Arostia, which launched late last year. I had a bag of the Ethiopian coffee and it was gone really quickly because I liked it so much and I drank a lot of it and I need more. The beans were grown at an altitude of 2,100 meters above sea level, which contributes to a dense bean that continues to develop its flavors after the roasting process is done. The tasting notes include apple, raisin, and caramel, and there are more coffees coming very soon. So support this fan-owned business and try the coffee today. And for Osiris listeners, there's a 10% discount code on the site. Use the code OSIRIS at checkout for 10% off your order, and stay tuned for the launch of a coffee subscription. You can order and sign up for the mailing list at arostia.com. That's A-R-O-A-S-T-I-A.com. And you can find Arostia on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks, Arostia. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey, this is Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this podcast is part of the Osiris podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and music. Osiris works in partnership with Relics. Check them out for all kinds of new music, news, and information. 
Hey everyone, welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. This week we're bringing you part two of our interview with Stephen Hyden. Uh, today is a great day because Fish announced fall tour dates. Uh, it's weird to sit here in the middle of May when it's 90 degrees outside and be thinking about fall tour, but I'm not complaining. I think this is the first time they've ever done um, a fall tour where it's only multi-night stands. Um, and in case we're your only source of fish information, which would be cool, and you haven't seen the news, they'll be playing uh, multi-night runs in Albany, Hampton, Nashville, Chicago, and Vegas for Halloween. So hope to see a bunch of you out there on the road, and we'll be talking about it a lot more leading up to fall tour, of course. This week, we're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Hyden, whose book, Twilight of the Gods, was released last week, May 8th. Um, this part is uh, a lot more about fish, and we talk about the dead and, and lots of other music. We really hope you have checked out the Beyond the Pond with Stephen Hyden. As usual, Brian and Dave go deep with Stephen and talk about a ton of music and musical topics that we didn't touch on in our episode. So highly recommend that you go back to that if you, if you haven't listened already. We'll put a link in the show notes. So we'll get right into it. We have a lot of great shows coming up over the next few months, and we're excited to uh, to bring you some more interviews and some more music, of course. There's a link in the show notes to take our listener survey, which will enter you to win a signed copy of Rift by Tom Marshall or um, an Amazon gift card. We really just want to know more about you and, and about your podcast listening and the kind of stuff you like. So check that out. We won't share your information with anyone, of course. And if you haven't yet, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out and helps other people discover the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Stephen Hyden. And thanks for listening. Keep on rocking. She stood there bright as the sun on that California coast. He was a Midwestern boy on his own. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So so among the other ways that you got into our heads and, and we had a shared experience, at least for me, um, I've had this thing that I've been thinking about for the last 10 years or so, which is that um, like I grew up on, I'll use two specific examples, um, Springsteen and Dylan. And I liked them a lot. And my parents were like huge Springsteen fans when I was growing up. Um, but... I didn't become the type of fan that I am today, particularly with Springsteen, um, until I started to become the age that Bruce was when he was writing that material. And I really understood it. Even sequentially, it's not like I hit 25 and suddenly I was like, Springsteen makes sense. Like, I hit that age and it was like Born to Run really made sense. And then all of a sudden it was like a couple years later, Darkness. And then I hit 30 and the river was like, you know, a parallel to my life. And you talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, to kind of get it back to fish, like you mentioned, like you got into fish in your mid 30s and a lot of people get into it when they're younger. Like, what do you think is, is, is there like a sweet spot somewhere in there where like, you know, fish is like the right band for you at that, at that point in your life? I don't know. I mean, it does seem like something that you would get into more as a younger person because the live experience is so important. And when you're younger, it's just easier to go to shows or to say like, I'm going to follow fish 
up and down the coast. You know, it's harder. It's harder to do that if you have kids or you're married or something. So it probably, you know, my, my experience was just so weird <laughs> to get into them. Um, I mean, again, for me, it was sort of like a way. I think a fish is almost like a backdoor to classic rock history. You know, it was like I've been walking in the front door for so long and like this was like another door to get me into it. And um, it's funny because like not everyone listens to the band that way. You know, I know people that are really into sort of the improvisational aspect of fish and they approach fish almost from like a jazz perspective. Like they're really into jazz and, and they connect with fish on that level. And, you know, fish is a big enough band where you can kind of have your own, uh, entry point, you know, you can like, like what I love about fish might not be the same as someone else. You know, they, they, they might sort of connect with a different aspect of what they do. Um, so there, there may be people who read my book and there may be fish fans who read the book and they don't really connect with like all of the sort of classic rock and like emphasis that I put on them. Um, but for me, that was it. Like, I loved how, to me, they were reverent and irreverent towards a lot of music and a lot of sort of tropes that I loved, you know, that they could in some way sort of embody like what classic rock was like in the 70s and 80s. And yet making fun of it isn't the right way to say it, but like there is an element to fish that I think is postmodern where they're sort of like, like when they... Um, do Freebird as like an acapella song or something, you know, there's an element where they're appreciating that song, but they're also approaching it in a way that is like, uh, commenting on it, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, isn't it interesting that we're taught that we're performing this very well-known song in this way. And it's one of those things where you can appreciate it on a straightforward level, but if you're one of those people that obsesses about classic rock and has read all the books and seen all the movies and like loves the mythology, to see a band do that, I think you appreciate it on a different level. You know, because I think Fish is like that too. I think that they are obsessive fans, you know, and that they went to a lot of shows and that they care about all this stuff. Like 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 Bittersweet Motel to me. You know, I love that movie, but there's there's parts of that movie where you almost feel like Fish is very self-aware about being in a, in, a, in a rock documentary and that you could tell that these guys have seen a lot of other rock documentaries and they know how bands look in those right. movies. And not that they're playing a part, but like, you know, there is sort of a self-conscious mythology going mm -hmm. on in that. And I think that's shared with fans, too. I think fans realize that as well and they connect with that and um it's done in such a fun playful way you know like i'm describing this in a very sort of intellectual sort of dry academic way in, in a sense you know like what's so great about fish is that they can do these things and it, it seems fun and organic you know um that's one thing I always try to express to people that don't understand the band. I think one thing that people who don't like fish 
uh, I think one of the misconceptions is that, you know, there are these sort of virtuosic musicians and it's sort of virtuosity for the sake of virtuosity, which makes it sound like, you know, it's all about technical displays of, of instrumental prowess. And I think the band is so playful. You know, there, there's a real sense of guy, you know, guys just hanging out on stage and, and having a blast and doing it in front of tens of thousands of people. Um, and I just find that really sort of intoxicating to be around. Like I, it's really exciting because most bands aren't like that. Um, when they perform, you know, cer- and certainly not most arena bands aren't, you know, there's not that sense of like people just plugging in and playing. That's yeah, what it feels the, like to see fish. I feel like that's something that's jarring to a lot of people when they see fish in an, you know, arena or amphitheater for the first time. It's like, instead of this, you know, lights out explosion band hits the stage. It's like, they wander out on stage, they pick up their instruments, you know, and then it's like, all right, uh, what do you want to open with? Uh, ACDC bag. All right, let's do it. You know? Right. And I think that, uh, you mentioned the virtuosity is it not being about that. I think the virtuosity is just a, uh, uh, almost a convenient thing that they have going for them as they're really just going to be dudes sitting around amusing one another anyways whether they if they weren't a band they would be friends who would get together regularly for drinks or whatever and just and have a lot of laughs but it turns out they're a band and a really good band so this is their medium for that communication and they let us all hang out and enjoy it too and that that inside joke kind of thing that they have going amongst themselves, we've caught on to because we paid attention long enough. And that can also be a little bit of a, a barrier to a new listener. You kind of have to get in the room with them and t- to get in on the joke. And yeah, exactly. Although I don't think it's as much of a barrier as maybe fans make it out to be. I think sometimes, you know, there can be too much of a, I know when I got into it, I always felt like, Oh, this is going to be impossible for me to understand because it's like walking into, it's like watching a TV show starting in the sixth season. Like I don't have any of the previous seasons knowledge. So I'm going to be totally lost. Yeah. But you could jump in the middle of Barney Miller. It's fine. Right. Right. (laughs) And like, there's enough there again, like where, um, like if you love Led Zeppelin or something and you've seen the song remains the same a hundred times, you can, you can what you, you can listen to fish bootlegs and you can kind of get a similar thing from what Led Zeppelin was doing, but kind of filtered through this like sensibility that this sort of encyclo- like the, this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of music sensibility that, that fish brings to everything where they can draw on, a little bit of song remains the same. They can draw on a little bit of like NRBQ. They can draw on a little bit of like, you know, remain in light, you know, and from all these other things and they can kind of integrate it in a way that is a, that's very novel, but also lets you sort of appreciate the same things that they appreciate. You know, you can appreciate it through their perspective, uh, which is always like a, such a fun thing to do with a band, you know, like that has that, that sort of breadth of knowledge and, and reference points. Steven, so you're, you're a parent, we're all parents and wanted to kind of end it, end this conversation by looking at the future a little bit. I mean, who knows what our kids listening experiences will be like, but definitely different than our 
growing up and, and definitely different than they are now. I'm, I'm just thinking about, um, you know, thinking about the, the availability of music and that'll change and who knows how it will change. But what do you think at this point about how our kids will, will grow up and, and listening to music and, and discovering music and, and discovering music like fish. And, and maybe it's a separate question, but how do you feel like fish kind of fits into that broader rock mythology now that you've kind of thought about it as much as you did? Like, will, will our kids even, or our kids, the four of us will, no fish but like will another person's kid discover fish naturally or will it kind of uh dissipate into the ether of everything else out there well i think our children the four of our you know our collective brood they will carry the fish torch forward because they (laughs) will have heard it in their house so at least be one of those things that they can appreciate as something that their dad listened to and hopefully they'll have warm memories of that i mean i don't know i don't know how you know things will look in the future i don't know i mean one of the things i read about in the book is is talking about like rock music going forward like and and you know this isn't like a rock is dead book i hope people don't because it's definitely talking about sort of an era of rock music being on the wane you know because there's a lot of these there's this sort of original generation of, of, of classic rock bands. You know, we're, we're starting to see them uh, retire from the road, or in some cases, musicians, of course, are passing away. And that's only going to become more frequent in the next, say, decade. Because um, a lot of these people are in their 70s. Some are even in their 80s by now. Um, but, but, I mean, but like I said before, I think we're in an era where nothing dies. You know, everything kind of sticks around um, because there's always going to be someone who's into it, even if it's not sort of the mainstream thing or or the center of culture anymore. Um, You know, when I was getting into music, it was so hard to hear the records that I was reading about. You know, I had to get on my bike and go to the record store and it was like Lord of the Rings, you know, it was like a big <laughs> fucking epic journey to do a to, to you know to get a tape. To go, you know, I had to ride like a half hour both ways and I had to go on busy streets and it was kind of scary, you know, riding in the bike lane and all that stuff. Um, and I kind of romanticized that now. Uh, because it was fun. It, it, it was a really exciting thing, and it was really exciting to buy albums that, that I had only read about in magazines. And now you you find, like, Loaded by the Velvet Underground, or you find Rust Never Sleeps by Neil Young and Crazy Horse, or you find Night at the Opera by Queen. And you go home and you hear that for the first time. Um, but, you know now a kid can just go on Spotify and hear that stuff. And like, it's not as romantic as my story, but it's in every other way, it's better. You know, like you can become, you can be 12 and you can become an expert on queen in a day. You can hear all the seventies albums in the space of an afternoon. And that just leads me to believe that like, because this music I think is great. I think it will still be around because it because it'll be there to be heard and it'll be easier to be heard than ever um will it have the same sort of meaning will it define people in the same way i don't know you know my my suspicion is that loving this kind of music will just be one sort of piece in a larger puzzle you know uh 
because so many things are, you know, there's no, the, the context of everything has changed now. There's not the same sort of stratification that used to occur, you know, like where you're listening to the classic rock station all the time. So that's the thing you're into and you're not really exposed to any other, anything else. And that doesn't really happen. I don't think as much anymore. If you're on Spotify and you listen to the Beatles, you can just as easily listen to um, Cardi B, you know, in in the space of like a click. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, so, yeah, so, so I guess the identity part of it or the mythology part of it, I, I don't know if that will uh, how that will change at all. Um, but. The music is great. I think it'll. I think it'll stick around. I don't know. I guess we'll see. You know, people still listen to Robert Johnson, and he's been dead for like eighty years. So you know, so we'll see. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious. I guess to see what happens. I'm curious to see. You know, getting into the 2020s. You know, seeing hologram bands. You know, I think I think <laughs> we'll see more of that. Um, you have Frank Zappa is supposedly doing a hologram tour. I don't know if that's later this year. I think that's this year. Um, that's the, I mean, there's probably going to be a hologram Jerry Garcia at some point. I, yeah. I you know, I, and there'll be holograms of everybody. Um, you know, maybe there'll be like a hologram, you know, John Bonham and then Jimmy Page and Robert Plank and reunite Led Zeppelin because with a hologram John Bonham. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but there's just there's just too much money uh, there. There's, there's people that want to see it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's going to be the future. I think we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of that uh, in the years ahead. God help us. what we need is the the whole Westworld thing to get accelerated so we can just transfer all these people into uh, robots and then they can keep playing and it'll be much closer to the real thing well then maybe all the dead rock stars will kill us then that'll that'll be the twist it would be my honor to be killed (laughs) by dead rock stars I like the idea. Take me, Jerry. I like like the idea of Westworld, but but for Woodstock. There you go. Every day is just every day is Woodstock again. And because like the big part of my book is talking about the mythology of, of classic rock and like how, you know, there are so many stories that originate from that music that have just been passed down. And, and you see them still being relived today. And you just mentioned Woodstock, you know, there are elements of Woodstock and like every major festival that we see now, you know, the idea of like young people gathering in a field to see music and do drugs being sort of a, a formative experience, you know, a prof- that this is something that can be profound and meaningful, you know, um, that's something that derives, you know, I mean, Woodstock wasn't the first major music festival. There were it was, there was Monterey, and there were, you know, the, the Newport folk festivals and all that stuff. Um, but you know, like Woodstock, is still sort of like the defining example of that. And uh, you know, it's curious to see how these things live on, even maybe when some of the music fades away. That like Woodstock as a model totally translated to EDM festivals, for instance. You know, which you know, 
people talk about that being different, like all these big EDM festivals, but it's like, no, young people like doing drugs together and hearing, you know, banging music. I mean, it's sort of the same model. It might be Jimi Hendrix or it might be, you know, Skrillex, but it's like the, the drugs and the young people thing is the same. You know, and the Grateful Dead too, like being such a big influence on that, that scene. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's a, is, you know, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating development. I mean, the other thing too, I mean, I write about this in the book. Um, like one thing I think is fascinating with the Grateful Dead is that um, so many people have done apprenticeships with members of the Grateful Dead that have gone on to play like Grateful Dead music, mm-hmm. you know, and like Joe Russo's Almost Dead is like the most obvious example of that. And I write about Joe Russo's Almost Dead a little bit in the book. And I, I went through kind of a weird experience with th- with that band because I started collecting their bootlegs because I really liked their, I really like how that band plays. And I like Marco Benvenuto, I think I said his name right, the, ben- the keyboard player. Benvenuto. Benevento, thank you. It's a lot of syllables. He's actually probably, I, you know, I like I, I might like him more than any keyboard player that played in the Grateful Dead. I think he does more. I mean, even Godshow, you know, you know, he was never like a lead instrumentalist in the Dead, the way that Benevento. Did I say it right again? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Benevento that time. Benevento. You know, like like none of the keyboard players in the Grateful Dead were ever like the lead instrumentalist. It was always them following Jerry, and like in Joe Russo's Almost Dead, like Marco's doing things with the keyboards that I think are way more imaginative, imaginative than any of like the actual keyboard players in the dead did. And then, you know, and then that same band, they also have that instrumental Led Zeppelin, the bustle in the hedgerow thing, which is cool. Um, but it's just fascinating that the, that the dead have sort of apprenticed, they've sort of trained this generation of musicians to basically play Grateful Dead music as its own genre or, or, or you know, where they're taking sort of the dead, almost like bands in the sixties reapproaching the blues, you know, like they, they use the blues as a blueprint and they're taking it in these different directions. And there's almost like there does seem to be this generation of, of bands that are, are like cover bands basically, but then they're kind of, starting to take the raw materials of the dead in different directions. Um, but then they've all trained with the dead. So it's like the dead has trained their own repertoire, their own repertory company. You know, so like, uh, when we're gone, we have our own orchestras that are going to go out and play our music, you know, like, like we're classical composers and, uh, you know, the, you know, these are the new, these, these are the orchestras that are you know, the dark star orchestra, you know, they're going to play dead music after, you know, the guys are gone. RJ and I had an opportunity to talk to uh, a couple guys, a group of guys, the Golden Gate Wingmen, and uh, put that interview on my uh, Grateful Dead podcast a little while back. Uh, but they all four of these guys played with the dead uh, or dead members of the dead in various bands and uh, then got together uh, in their, you know, off time from other projects and put this together and they're playing kind of working off the dead catalog and the familiar canon of other music, you know, like Beatles and whatnot and putting their own influences into it. Uh, The guitar player, John I'm going to get it wrong. John Kadlasek, uh, he 
talks about the Grateful Dead is just being folk music. It's just an extension of folk music that they came from. And I think he makes a pretty good point there. And I think that dovetails right into what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, and I, I touch on that in the book about bands looking at classic rock as folk music, mm-hmm. you know, taking it, using it as raw materials in the same way that the original rock bands looked at the blues. You know, like we're taking old blues songs, but we're playing them in a way that isn't like the blues. It's it's a rock and roll style. And um, I think that's going to be something that we see more of in the future, like where... Uh, I mean, I you know, again, I was using the term orchestra, you know, like how people like after Mozart died, people were playing Mozart's music after he died, you know, and they continue to play Mozart's music centuries after he died. And I, I don't know if we'll see roving sort of orchestras, rock orchestras, 100 years from now, playing like the greatest hits of the Beatles and the Stones and the Grateful Dead and all that. Um, it's very intriguing. I- I was in Mexico recently, and on a Sunday afternoon on the bandstand in the center of town, there was, uh, there was a, a band, like, you know, horns and strings and whatnot, and they were playing a Beatles medley. Yeah. So it, it'll stay with us. Yeah, I mean, and it's incredible. I mean, again, going back to Joe Russo's Almost Dead, I mean, that band plays Red Rocks. They headline Red Rocks. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, how many... How many bands would kill to play for that kind of audience? Um, it really speaks to their popularity, and you know, and they're really good at it. I mean, I've never seen them live yet. They, I, they were here in Minneapolis before I moved here, um, but I, you know, I, I've seen their live streams, and I like their, I like the the tapes that I've you know downloaded um, of them. But it, but it always is a little bit weird that it's like. Oh, I'm listening to Joe Russo's Almost Dead play Bertha. <laughs> and like I could go I could just listen to like a regular Grateful Dead bootleg or I could go see Dead and Company, I guess, like with but they're all quite different. <laughs> yeah. I mean the Dead and Company thing is you know, is I mean I write about that in the book too. I I I, I wrote about this recently because you know Fleetwood Mac, they got rid of Lindsey Buckingham, and now they have, they have Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers, and they have Neil Finn from Crowded House, which seems super random. Very. Like like Mike Campbell is you know L A, you know he was part of L A music scene. I I I kind of understand that. It makes a little bit more sense, but um, you know you're seeing this more and more as well, where uh, you know. These, these huge classic rock bands, they lose members, so then they bring in like another famous person and they continue going on. And, you know, and look, there's this is kind of always happened in classic rock. There's always there's, there's many instances of like people leaving and you replace them. Um, but it does feel th- th- this phenomenon feels a little bit different because you know it's not like ACDC losing Bon Scott and they hire Brian Johnson and then they go do. Uh, uh, back in black and they're like bigger than ever you know these are bands that are basically putting on spare parts so they can continue to tour in their twilight years you know like they're all past their sort of creative peaks you know they're not recharging to make another like masterpiece they're they're they're, they're like putting drywall over like a cracked foundation you know it's like okay 
we need someone here. We need, you know, we, Brian Johnson is deaf, so we're going to have Axel Rose. And uh, holy shit, it actually works, you know. Um, so that'll be interesting to see. I, the term I use in the book is called shrunk groups, you know, playing on the term supergroup, that like these groups are kind of shrinking and shriveling up and they're melting into each other as they get older. <laughs> so it'll be curious to see like, if that continues. <laughs> like if Keith Richards dies, maybe Jimmy Page will join Rolling the Rolling Stones. Uh, or, you know, if... Uh, uh, you know, Pete Townsend loses Roger Daltrey. Maybe he'll get like Steven Tyler in there and he'll sing who songs or something. You know, I don't know. Um, or they'll get Eddie Vedder to do who songs. Um, you know, I can't say I'm a, I'm a fan of that idea, although I think you were the one who threw out one that I could actually get on board with, which was Ryan Adams and the Heartbreakers. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That would be great. Yeah. I mean, I'm of two minds on this. On, on one hand, like Fleetwood Mac without Lindsey Buckingham. And I, I don't know. Like, what's the point? But um, at the same time, it's like people are going and they're having a good time. So who cares? You know, it's like unless you're actually going to put like Mike Campbell in disguise and say that he's Lindsey Buckingham, you know, that I would say is wrong, but it's like, you know what you're getting, you know, he's not there, you know, it's Mike Campbell. And maybe you're like, Oh, it'd be cool to hear Mike Campbell play awesome outro guitar solos like he did in the heartbreakers, but do a Fleetwood Mac. Like that might be kind of fun for people to, to see. Um, but you know, at some point very soon, all of these people will be gone and you won't be able to see any iteration of these bands. So, you know, to me, it's kind of weird to hear John Mayer sing, uh, um, you know, loser or, you know, uh, um, any grateful dead song, any grateful dead song, any (laughs) Jerry Garcia song. It seems kind of bizarre, but you know, you get to hear the Grateful Dead rhythm section playing and you get to see Bob Weir, you know, in his short shorts and, you know, <laughs> rocking out. So and you won't be able to see that forever. There's an expiration. Oh, no, you can never unsee Bob Weir in short <laughs> shorts. <laughs> well, so, Stephen, I, I, I do want to um, I want to just well, first of all, I want to say that um this book was so fun to read because um, the deep dives on artists from, you know, Bowie to Springsteen to Ozzy Osbourne to Dylan Zeppelin, Tom Petty. Um, it was just really fun. And for a lot of us, I think it was going back and revisiting things, but with a totally different um, perspective. And I, I just really enjoyed it. So thank you for thank you for writing it. You should keep writing about rock music. Well, thanks, man. You know, it's so great to hear you say that. I mean, the book, you know, it's not out yet. It's not out yet as we're talking. I guess the book will be out. A few days after this, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm still, not a lot of people have read it. So 
to hear you say that, that's what I want people. That's exactly <laughs> the reaction I want. So to, to, to hear people with that reaction, it's really gratifying. So so thank you. I'm glad you liked it. And I want it before John and Jonathan and Matt talk. I just want to say one thing. I think my favorite part in the book was when you talked about Tom Petty and his relationship in the music world to Bruce Springsteen and because the more and I, I kind of got into Bruce more recently actually and um, the the extreme work ethic compared to Tom Petty and the analogies you make it just I think it's really kind of perfect and I've never thought about Tom Petty like that like you said the, the most important thing was that he just didn't try too hard you know and that's what made him so easy to like and i had never actually thought about that but since since i read that i've been thinking about that and thinking like that's exactly how i think about tom petty you know great but like didn't he didn't you know he didn't push it too much yeah and there's something just so um a tom petty song comes on and you don't have to think about it at all like it's just it's just fucking good you know and like he delivers um, he does he does this thing that I think is actually really hard to do where you can hear a song and you can get everything you need from it everything you need to understand it like on the first listen like it's instantly likable like in the way that a great pop song is and yet you can hear that song a thousand times and it's still good yeah you don't burn out on Tom Petty songs yeah like 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 you know like the waiting how many times have you how many times have you heard the waiting <laughs> I, uh, me like a thousand like a hundred thousand times but they, that guitar riff comes on and I'm like fucking excited it's like oh, fuck yeah the waiting yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna hear the waiting for the next three and a half minutes I'm it's the hardest part <laughs> I'm happy I, I'm glad I don't have to wait for the waiting. it's, it's here the wait, the wait is over um, whereas with Springsteen I you know there, it's so much denser. With it's more work. It's more work, um, you know, and I don't know. It's funny because I wrote that thing about Petty before he died, and um, I had to change. I changed it a little bit after he after he passed away, but. Um, I think if I if I would have written that after he died, it would have been more sentimental, I think. And I probably would have not have written it the way I did. I stand behind what I wrote. I think that's what I think. And it's probably better that I wrote it that way because, um, you know, after people die, you just feel um, you just forget about any fault that they ever had. And um, you're less critical and you uh, I know for me like I, I, I've loved Tom Petty forever I own every Tom Petty record but like after he died like even shitty songs of his I loved mm-hmm. you know I wanted yeah. to hear like I was listening to like you know last DJ deep cuts and being like this is a fucking great song <laughs> well, I, yeah. I should have loved this song like always you know um, or like you know Mojo I was like oh Every, this, this album's a fucking masterpiece Mojo, this is great um, And it's not it's, That album's not that great um, But uh, I, I was just so forgiving Because I was like, he's gone You know and I, I felt so sad that he was gone So like any piece of him I just reveled in um, I don't know I don't want to jinx it Like when I was writing this book I was afraid that that like Bruce Springsteen was going to die or that like Paul McCartney was going to, you know, like all, like there's a bunch of people in the book that I was like, Oh man, like what if this person, 
because then you because it's almost like you're uh, I'm jinxing them by writing this book. I I, I did feel that, you know, and it well. may still happen. I mean, Prince died right before my first book came out, and there's a thing about Prince in there, and there's actually a line in that book because I talk about him and Michael Jackson, and the dynamic between those two, and um, and in that chapter, I was writing about how. Um, I was writing about this thing I was just talking about how like when someone dies it totally changes the conversation around them and in the case of Michael Jackson there was so much baggage that was just dropped with him it it became a lot simpler to like him and in a way I think it was almost easier for people after he died because then you didn't have to deal with like the child molestation stuff. It's like, well, it doesn't matter anymore. He's gone. So I can just love thriller. And I don't have to feel guilty about all this other stuff. And, um, and I was kind of comparing him to Prince and I was saying like, well, in the competition between Prince and Michael Jackson, like, like Prince won because, you know, he didn't die the way Michael Jackson did. Michael Jackson kind of died a ruined man in a lot of ways. And Prince had a comeback in the early 2000s, and he was beloved. Um, but yeah, but there's a line in the book where I literally say that he won because he lived, and then he died, like, two weeks before my book came out. <laughs> in almost the same so, exact way, too. Yeah, but like... Similar, but but with less shame... Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, there was drugs involved, but like, um, you know, Michael Jackson, I think, was much more of, I mean, he had gone through two trials, uh, two different trials for, you know, molesting children. Like, Prince never had anything like that. I think Prince's death was more shocking to people because, I mean, I think when Michael Jackson died, it was sort of like, people were expecting that to happen at some point. I mean, it was still shocking in its own way, but it was also like, you know, like, it's like, have you seen Michael Jackson lately? You know, like not a huge shock that he would maybe die at the age of 50. Whereas Prince, you know, he still looked good. He was, you know, he still was performing. Like he still looked like Prince. Um, and then, you know, and people weren't aware of his drug use, the way I think I mean maybe people weren't aware that my, I mean Michael Jackson I think was essentially taking like like horse tranquilizers or like like, like a super strong sedative like they, they you would give like animals or something to like knock them out at night I don't think people were aware of that but like people knew that he was fucked up I don't think people knew yeah. that people that Prince was dealing with some of the things that he was dealing with um as much I mean and I write about this in in Twilight of the Gods I had a really bizarre thing happen um, after Prince died where I did a radio interview with this woman Jillian Jillian Barbary do you guys know Jillian Barbary mm-hmm. yeah yeah she was like on she was like on the Fox uh, the Fox football morning show she hosts a radio show in LA and I got into a shouting match with her because um she was talking about Gene Simmons did this interview where he said that David Bowie's death was tragic because he died of cancer, whereas Prince's death was pathetic because it was drug related. And he was saying that like it was basically Prince's fault and that Prince was a de- like a, a degenerate because he died that way. And and 
Jillian Barbary, and I wasn't expecting her to do this. She sort of like ambushed me with this, and I was like, "No, I think that's bullshit." Like, for one thing, David Bowie was a huge drug user in the '70s. You know, it didn't kill him, but he was a huge drug user. I mean, he has like one of the great cocaine periods of all time. I think, like in the mid '70s, like just oh yeah, the degree yeah. to which he was gacked out is incredible. Um, but it didn't kill him, you know, thank goodness. Um, and whereas Prince, you know, he had his addictions, but he wasn't like putting it as forward as David Bowie was like in the seventies. Like it was pretty obvious that, that David Bowie was like coked out of his head for, for a while and, and doing lots of other things too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I got into a screaming match about this with Jillian Barbary because she was just being so awful about Prince. Like right after he died, I was like, "Why? Why does it even matter? Like, why are we shaming Prince about this? It, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me." Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, blame and shit on Gene Simmons just a little bit for all of that because he's <laughs> you know so yeah. anti-drug. Yet he just took a job as the chief evangelist for a cannabis company. So, fuck that guy, really. Um, I said it. I said it. I'll own that one. And I use that story as sort of an entry point to talk about sort of the mythology of, like, excess in classic rock and, like, excess as a means of self-discovery, you know, which is another big part of the mythology of, of, of classic rock music, that, like, you use a lot of drugs as a way of creating great art. And, um, and, how, and, that, and that's an essential part of, of, of creating great art and how that's been totally sort of, um, that's become totally unfashionable. Like that, that sort of excess now is totally frowned upon and, and talking about like how that happened, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, like the idea of someone acting like a rock star, you know, like when you say that, that has certain connotations of, of drug and alcohol abuse. And that's just not romanticized anymore. And I think mostly for good, but <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, as someone who, again, was a big classic rock obsessive growing up. I do think there was something sort of interesting about the idea that you push yourself in certain ways past the mores of society and that kind of gets you to an interesting place. You know, I don't think that's a totally irrelevant or, or a totally illegitimate way of looking at the world. Um, was it Bill Maher who said that, um, you know, Drugs hasn't hurt my record collection any. Something, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Although it hurt a lot of people in the record collection, I guess, but a lot of people who made the records. Perhaps, but the records are just awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll accept it and uh, the rest of us will try to live on. Um, Stephen, this, I, I want to thank you and I want to also make sure we've, we are saying here on the end of this thing, uh, the book is called Twilight of the Gods. And uh, it, it's out on May. What's the date? May something. May eighth. May eighth. And uh, and 
uh, RJ said it. I'm going to say it again. Love the book. It's, it's outstanding. And I also I want to thank you for talking with us about it. And I want to thank you also for being the first person to mention Cardi B on the podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, and everybody should be listening to Celebration Rock, uh, which is an awesome <clears throat> podcast that we all yes. listen to that um, we didn't even get into that Steven's done some great stuff around Bruce Springsteen. There was a lot, uh, eight part series and there was a huge Pearl Jam series last year. And so um, definitely a, a must listen podcast uh, if, you, if you like this sort of thing, which you probably do if you're listening to us. Guys, I love your podcast. I am honored and uh, thrilled that you asked me to be on. And, and uh, also congratulations on the Osiris Network. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. I'm excited. There's all these great podcasts you guys are doing. Um, and I like the fish podcast kingdom being expanding. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steven. We appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Take care. Take, Take it easy. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.